Before the show starts, I just wanted to draw attention to something that's affecting podcasters, particularly in America. There is currently an attack on the podcasting community by a patent troll. Patent trolls are people who buy up the rights to things that haven't happened yet, kind of. And then when they do happen, they say, hey, we thought of that, give us money for it. And this is a real threat to independent podcasting, which is an industry that's all about providing free content for people. So the people making it can't really afford to pay a patent troll. So I just want to reach out to any American listeners, and I know there's quite a few of you, and say, could you go to the website www.eff.org, which stands for Electronic Frontier Foundation. They're a not-for-profit organization advocacy group that are helping podcasters to fight these claims and to try and put in place laws that will protect podcasting so if you could go over there and have a look and uh, have click on their take action bit and that'll tell you how to how to show your support it doesn't have to take up loads of your time there's relatively quick and easy ways for you to just contact your elected representatives and tell them what you think about this issue that would really really help so thanks for your time oh also while i'm here talking to you i might as well add that the conversation that you're about to hear was recorded quite some time ago it's one of those sometimes it takes so long for a guest to get out and getting better acquainted that it comes as a real surprise to them when they do come out they think that i've forgotten about them but in fact i haven't i'm just waiting for the right moment to put their episode out so the one moment that touches on something topical is no longer topical that should be considered history and of course both myself and my guest are in the place in our life that we were over a year ago so i'm sure things are very different with my guest now it's uh it's weird to send the mic on so quickly into a conversation it undercuts the getting better acquainted thing i mean you have to be somewhat acquainted I think it was very much an attempt to have a sort of educational reality TV. So we all crammed onto an RV. We had a camera guy, we had the political science professor, and we had a professional safari driver. You internalized the need for drama. It wasn't Nobody told you that you needed to be dramatic, but you did act a bit differently. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Alex. Hello Alex. Hello. How did you meet me? How do you know me? We know each other through a mutual friend Liz. To be honest, I didn't really know her that well for very long before I met you. Right. So we're sort of getting into two levels of separation. Yeah, this is good. I think I was thinking about it today. I think we've met twice. I think so. I did do part of the narration for True Stories, I think, in one of the podcasts. Ah, okay. For the spark, that's right. Yeah. Well, I recorded you. I think that was the first time. So you're recording from the beginning. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, almost as soon as I met you, I recorded you, which is not... Not 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 something I, I would have thought I would be like a few years ago, but I guess it's kind of almost kind of yeah. This is my the new me. I record people. It's Just getting cool. bolder. I guess so. This project's making me bolder. I think. What do you do now? Right now, I'm a research assistant at the London School of Economics. So I'm researching early literature and human rights, its relation to radical thought, radical movements in England in the late 18th century, anti-capitalism, sort of stumbled into that. You stumbled into anti-capitalism? Well, I'd, I'd gone to the LSE to do a master's in law, and I had more of a focus on sort of theoretical human rights, constitutional law. But as often happens, I end up being good at things I don't want to be good at, or at least things that I've sort of done by accident or as a filler class. You know, I took international law. 
I didn't have much of a background in it, but it ended up being my best class and was hired by a professor, and here I am. But you fell, you say you, you fell into it. Did you start off with an interest in a kind of anti-capitalist point of view, or, or did it just come through uh, what you were good at? Well, being in university for nine years, you sort of tend to know a lot about left-wing causes, left-wing history. I wouldn't consider myself much of a radical. I'm wearing a suit right now. You are. It's a shiny suit. Uh, yeah, very shiny suit. Which is um, nice. Thank you. And a waistcoat. Yeah, although it's it's Definitely. tweed. It's not it's not very businesslike. No, that's not right. Sure, uh, a London think, banker would really go for no, it. No, I think you're right. And I think you've got a kind of what do you call it? A pocket square. Pocket square. Yeah. And that is quite unlike a banker in a way. It's more it's more like a Victorian banker than a than a modern banker. Yeah. Well, I'm a colonial. Sort of, I'm more English than the English thing. Yeah, I guess so. Because you're, you're Canadian, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, I've only been here about uh, 12 months, 14 months now, I think. Yeah. And what, what was your impression of the UK coming to it? I really enjoy it. You know, in Canada, everything is so spread out. It's nice to have a certain density, you know, not just in terms of the city, but in terms of groups, activities. Earlier tonight, I went to a talk for Chatham House. The nice thing about the talks in London is people show up, real people, not just crazy people who's in the back row, and Hector, the speakers. You know, I've really, really enjoyed London, and, you know, it's hard as a sort of person coming from a former colony because there's that dual recognition of certain things and at the same time it really is a different country so Canada's a bit awkward because we're beside the United States so we sort of cling to certain things that are you know Canadian but a lot of those are secretly just British things right Canadian bacon is just bacon you have here it's just bacon I mean that's a trivial example but yeah and I also I really enjoyed hanging out with other people from the Commonwealth. Again, you know, Australia really looms large in the consciousness here. There's like Australian soaps on TV, Australian pop stars seem to be popular here. Yeah, um, they, yeah, they still have a much bigger connection, whereas with us it's overshadowed by the U.S. Um, so it's nice to meet your sort of distant cousins and have that glimmer of recognition. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. And it's it certainly... I mean, we're all we're united by a common language, all of those countries, yeah. even America. I mean, and so it does mean that we can we kind of have common understandings, but we also have very different kind of cultural points of view in some ways as well. So it's it's yeah. nice to it's nice to see that someone can have the same language as you, but can they can have a different, slightly different take on the way of. Yeah. looking at the world and so yeah. you can sort of say well you know there are possibilities for changing culture as well as you know I mean that's where, that's how I kind of feel about it yeah. I mean I I think we're all very similar you know, and everywhere in the world maybe it's quite similar cultural certainly the places with money um, yeah. are I wouldn't call myself a radical at work, but yeah. I, I probably would call myself a radical at home. With a kind of slight grimace, because... What do you mean uh, radical at home? Or is that in my interview oh, right. now? Well, you can do that. That's fine. So it kind of works like a conversation to a certain extent in this podcast. So I'm happy to to be asked things too. Well, you could say no comment. I could, I could. What I mean is... At work, I'm not supposed to and nor do I express a political view yeah. I work for a council mm-hmm. but you know at home I am able to have my own um, outspoken political views and I guess I'm left or not, not quite left some kind of close to the left well, as, as, as I re- yeah. put me into that box. As I recall, one of the two times we met, there was a Tory researcher right. at the table, That's and you had right. a long, a long argument with him. Well, I, was, I don't know if it was a, exactly an argument because he he says he's a libertarian, ah. and I'm, I guess, an anarchist. Although I am reluctant to use the phrase because yes. it gets misinterpreted, and so I was seeing how true the the truism that libertarians and anarchists have a lot in common was. So I was interested to see if we agreed on things fundamentally, me and him. Yeah. 
I'd say that the results are still inconclusive at the moment. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get him on the show and, mm-hmm. and bash it out. I'd like to interview a Tory. That would be interesting to try and empathise with a Tory because that's one of the things I try and do in this show. Is see things from the other person's point of view. When you said you weren't a radical, but you your research area is in left wing. I'm, I'm, that's why I'm re- that's yeah. that's the, the conundrum I'm trying to unpick in my mind at the moment. Well, again, I, I did a, a philosophy degree first, but I also did economics. It was a dual major. Yeah. I ended up in law school. I think just temperamentally, law allowed you to have a certain detachment. And also, I did like that there were right answers to some extent. Yeah. After doing a philosophy degree, you know, I'd always get my papers back and they'd say, oh, very, you know, very erudite, very well written. But you didn't really come to a conclusion. You didn't really say anything. Now, that problem wouldn't really be solved by law school, but it showed I was argumentative and, in a curious way, maybe law forced me to come to answers. But law school's a tricky place because, and law's a tricky place because there's a certain buy-in to the system. You're swearing an oath to the government, to the queen, to uphold the laws. But at the same time, it's a radical site. You have lawyers who are using their knowledge to fight for underprivileged groups. You have groups, maybe they're anarchists, and there's debates about whether or not they want to employ effectively the machinery of the state to advance their cause. It's the same old argument. You know, you have Lenin on one side, and then you have the Fabians. Although Lenin would still use the machinery of the state to crush it, at least in the early stages. Yeah, and especially somewhere like Canada that has a large Aboriginal population. I came from Ontario, uh, Toronto. There's not as much of an Aboriginal presence there as there is in somewhere like Vancouver uh, and BC and BC the treaties uh, that exist in the other parts of the country were never really signed there's a lot of outstanding land claims there's a lot of legal machinations around that and that really comes up in law school people you meet there there's a lot of Aboriginal students I actually worked for an Aboriginal professor at one point doing research on international law and um, Aboriginal groups at the United Nations. There's an interplay between the sort of systems of order and law and oppressed groups who are just grasping at whatever advantage they can have. No, that Um, makes sense. And those Aboriginal communities as well, they're in a very strange position where they have their own laws, but those laws are not recognised by the country necessarily. If they want to protect their communities, they do have... Well, arguably, I would say they probably have to play ball to a certain extent. Or they'll be... The goals will be scored. Yeah, it's an awkward awkward position of recognizing any sort of external government power over them versus securing government funding to pay for housing. There's a big controversy right now in Canada where a group declared a state of emergency and the government seems to have responded by auditing them, <laughs> saying, well, we gave you money, what did you do with it? And then they sent up somebody to take over the, the finances, who was then kicked out. So by, by signing up for the state in that case, they now have the state running their, their, their business yeah. themselves. Interesting. Kind of what you're talking about is quite reflective in the way I think about the world in terms of... When I when I have to call myself something these days, I generally call myself a pragmatic anarchist because, from my point of view, you know, anarchy is an end state, and you kind of have to go with what you've got on the table. And I wouldn't get rid of the welfare state now, although ultimately, if I was to restructure society, the welfare state as it exists wouldn't wouldn't exist at all because. I mean, I don't believe in hierarchical systems. Yeah. But I do believe that people have to organise their society, so there would have to be order. There would have to be order even in an anarchist society. You can't have human...
an organisation about some kind of compromise, interaction, decision-making process. Even if you just look at a couple, you know, in a relationship you have to negotiate. Even though you love each other and you try and be egalitarian, you still have to have some kind of structure to work. What are you researching? What is your researching? Well, see, the thing is, I'm an assistant. Right. So, so you're doing I mean, so it is someone else's work. I was picked because I have some background and I've done well in this kind of thing, I guess. But, yeah, it's someone else's work. So I think it may be you're describing too much, too much to me. No, well, that's, that, that's kind of... I guess that's the... That's it, unpicked. Yeah. That, that you're doing somebody else's research. Yeah. Do you have an interest in it? You know, I have an interest, but I, I don't really have the temperament to be a radical <laughs> is the problem, right? So, yes, I could do my master's and take courses and read Lenin and, and all that, but I just don't really have the temperament for it, and I feel like I stick out in the situations. Obviously, I'm wearing a suit now. So, I went to the um, anarchist fair. I can't remember what was it called. There was a queen the there. Anarchist, the, no, there was the anarchist book fair. Yeah, the, I went to the anarchist book fair. And I, Friends I, of mine invited me. I couldn't Yeah, well, we went with Liz. I, yeah, I went. And I really stuck out there, you know. I'd sort of not thought about it and I ended up wearing like brogues and grey flannel trousers and like a blue blazer or something and yeah I just don't fit in when I was in Berlin my friend took me to an anarchist squat which is also a cafe and I did not react well to this environment like it annoyed me everybody that was there annoyed me Uh, it felt like it was a buying into a kind of it was like it was they were they were subscribing to their idea of what is cool rather than necessarily yeah. like I don't know I don't want to dismiss them either because since then I felt very bad about the way I kind of responded I didn't like the way I felt about those anarchists in that in that, in that squad but I just yeah. like, couldn't relate to them I felt like I stuck out well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a question of, yeah, a lot of it has to do with relating. I've been to a fair number of anarchist bookstores. My girlfriend, her brother, I don't know if you would describe himself as an anarchist, really. But it's he's obviously thing to call yourself. Yeah, well, I, mean, again, I wish I didn't call myself an anarchist. And it's tricky for him because he's also now gone to law school, right? So, but he did a lot of volunteering for... You know, organizations that fed the homeless, they'd face, well, the, the city that didn't really like them attracting homeless people to their food distributions. This is in Alberta. There were white supremacists operating there. Somebody he knows was targeted by white supremacists who'd broke into his house and beat up this, this guy. And then the police took away their children, saying that it, it was not safe for them. So I mean, he operates in those circles, and then I, through one connection or another, end up occasionally wandering on stage. But yeah, I, I've never really found I relate. And that's sort of unfair, because it's not an ideological thing, necessarily, but there's a social element, you know? Yeah. You're the the law student type you have an economics degree or whatever well, yeah. you have and have a lack of passion for the cause I guess that's another thing yeah but I, I don't know I, I, I mean in my, my own life I just want to break down those barriers instinctually I want to try and connect with other people mm-hmm. but I also think that I I really don't like orthodoxies, so it doesn't matter if it's left wing, right wing, anything. I just I don't handle authority very well. <laughs> and and I mean, I wish that I could go to those kind of places and uh, and fit in. But I don't fit into the law school either. I don't yeah. fit into it. Like if I'm in a room with a load of people in suits, I really don't fit. In. Do you fit? In? To a certain extent, I mean, I. I think in these sort of social businessy things I can operate 
going to law school doing a master's degree in law with people who are qualified lawyers and the whole professional aspect you just you get used to it um, I'm not particularly amazing at it you know networking and all that stuff I'm not no I'm bad at that my, I just cringe but then the people who are good at it don't just think about it that way that's just how they are yeah it's natural isn't it? it's natural I've been trying to be myself more in social situations yeah. because I think that will ultimately mean whatever networking I can do I'll do yeah. rather than kind of even even puncturing the possible networking I could have by being too desperate you know, I think that they, everyone everyone senses when you're trying yeah well there's plenty of opportunities in London that's one thing again public events every day lawyers especially have a problem with alcohol uh, free drinks people show up yeah People yeah, have fun. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. It's showing up to have that fun I'm not very good at doing. You've got two degrees in law, yeah? Yeah, and I guess the third degree in philosophy and economics did have some legal component because I did a lot of philosophy of law. So I did four or five classes, three or four classes, including I think at least one or two graduate classes that may have been related. Yeah. So you've done three degrees? Yeah. Well, in Canada, you have to do a degree before law school. Okay. Right? It's not like here where you have these bright-eyed 22-year-olds who are all lining up to be barristers with a you know, 10% chance at making it. In Canada, people in law school are older. Maybe they're a bit more experienced, hopefully. So it's a little bit more like it's the medicine you have to have a long yeah. period of time before you I think it's set, yeah, it's set up to be like medicine, basically. And then, unlike in the US, there's an articling process. So you have to work for a year. It's the same thing in England. You have pupillages and um, traineeships for barristers and solicitors. But you only needed to do two degrees to become a lawyer. Yeah, I only needed to do two. Um, Why did you do three? Well, a couple of reasons. I think the first one, because I had this sort of academic philosophy of law background going in, that I was interested in those issues, and I felt maybe that I just didn't do enough of that in law school, that I wasn't done with school and I wanted to do a bit more of that. And the second thing is I just didn't have a job. So doing an LLM was something I wanted to do at some point. I had the time now. Uh, my girlfriend could get a visa to England. You have to be under 31 to get it. Right, so um, you have to do it then. So there's a convergence yeah. there, so I just went for it. Cool. And the LSE is very popular with Canadians for whatever reason. It's, it's quite popular generally, isn't it? It's very international. I... I mean, part of that is they make more money from international students, especially with government cutbacks here. They're not a scientific institution, so they don't get this sort of block science grant funding. They really rely on tuition, and international students just pay more. It's half the cost of the U.S., though even at this inflated international rate. And again, it's very popular in Canada. I got into UCL. I don't know if people have heard of UCL in, in Canada. All you ever hear is LSE, LSE, LSE. So are you a qualified lawyer? No, I'm not a qualified lawyer. I still have to article. I still have to get a job and do this year-long apprenticeship, basically. And that's the trouble. It's hard to get one in Canada from over here. English people have enough trouble getting jobs over here. I think barristers have something like an 8% success rate or a 7.5% success rate of making it. Canada's not so bad, but um, yeah, I did my degree in Vancouver, which is about 5,000 kilometers away from Toronto, where I'd wanted to eventually settle. So that was its own difficulty. Yeah, so I've, I've not had much luck until now. Maybe now that I've gone to the LSE, things will change. Well, you, you know, you, you've got two, two degrees in yeah. law plus an extra degree. This is, it must make you to a more employable to a certain extent. Well, yes and no. I mean, it makes you more employable for certain... You've got, less ex- you've got no experience. Things. Yeah, and even, even in terms of my experience, I've always ended up being research assistant. I was the editor-in-chief of a legal journal in law school. So I suppose some of those things look good in the resume. On the other hand, if you're applying for a, a very small 
personal injury type of practice. Right. Maybe the person who dresses like a Victorian lawyer and has three degrees, including one from the LLC, maybe they're, they're not right for you. You just sort of have to, I don't know, apply to lots of stuff and see what happens. It's not as much of a problem in Canada. In the U.S., it's a disaster because... These people are paying $40,000 a year for their undergrad and their law degrees, plus living, and they then need to get a job. And the system was set up on the basis that they could go work for $160,000 U.S. starting salary in New York, and that would pay off their loans. And then when that dried up, they have a quarter million dollars in debt and no way to pay it back. Yeah. It's it's a bit better in Canada, I think, but you know it still may be a challenge. Yeah, and it's a challenge you have in front of you. Yeah. When we met the last time, when I sort of talked about interviews, you mentioned that you'd work on a carny. Yeah, I, I was a carnival worker. That's my first job. So in Canada, you have these big <laughs> end of summer carnivals. You know, a million people might go. They run for a couple weeks, three weeks. Yeah. And like many of the jobs that I have actually secured, this one was secured for me by somebody else. So just a girl I knew in high school said, do you want to be a carny? I said, sure. <laughs> I went down one day to the fair, and I think they, they sort of traveled around to small towns in Ontario. And then at the end of summer, they all the different companies converge into this one big carnival, the Canadian National Exhibition. The owner of this group interviewed me and said, do you know anything about machines? And I said, well, I know something about computers. <laughs> it was close enough. So I ended up working on those crane games. You know, you sort of wiggled the joystick and then the crane goes down and tries to pick up a little teddy bear. Yeah, and I ended up doing that, giving change occasionally banging the machines they're sort of held together with elastic bands and paper clips and you know somebody's quarter wasn't recognized and uh, then you would you know give them a free game or something it was a tough first job I remember I was promised a stool uh, because you're you're out there it was a 14 hour day well you had two hours off so you had a lunch and you had dinner I, I think basically to get around laws about how much you can work uh, in a day. They gave you these long breaks, but they're sort of useless because you're stuck at this carnival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had horse, horse shows, and then I would go watch the horses, and they had, like, a um, trade show aspect. So, like, those little guy, those guys who fly those little helicopters, you know, I don't know if you're, like, you go to M&S or Selfridges or something in the basement. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, that kind of thing booths and I just wander around yeah I just remember being promised a stool in the first three days of my working life being misery because I wasn't given a stool and I never like I never worked retail I'd never done that thing where you stand for long periods so how old were you probably too old I think I was probably 16 or something 16 yeah 16 17 and was it was it a weekend job or was no? It that's the, it was every day. Every day. Yeah, so it was an eighteen-day-long fair. We're in the middle of a giant asphalt field. They also they also do like indie indie sort of F one type, but the North American lamer equivalent of races there. Thirty-five degree heat. Probably over forty with a humidex sometimes. Oh god. Uh, well, there was a little awning, so if you if you positioned yourself through the day. You could stay in the shade. But yeah, after three days, I finally worked up the courage. And it's like, where's my stool? <laughs> Things were a bit better than that. But I, I remember, yeah, having a legal interview once. And I'd, I'd, you know, I'd not had much job experience, so I had to put that I was a carny down. And the lawyer interviewing me asked me about it and said, well, you know, how did you enjoy this? And I said, it's tough. You know, it's a 14 hours a day. It's a two-hour commute. Or one hour commute there and, and one, one hour, hour commute back. Back. Yeah, yeah. So you have eight hours in which to, you know, feed yourself and sleep. Yeah, and he, and he he just looked at me basically and said, well, so what? It's the hours that's the problem. <laughs> this is a corporate lawyer. <laughs> so, okay. so you can't handle the long hours. Like, well, no, it was the standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and the heat. Get about those hours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And the heat. Yeah. Presumably your downtown Toronto office tower is air conditioned. That's fine. And as far as the sleeping and eating is concerned, presumably 
when you're working as a lawyer, you can pay somebody to make you a sandwich. Yeah, well, I mean, you said it was was it 18 days? It was 18 days straight, too. But there's no weekends. No. Or even a day, not even yeah, an afternoon. 14 hours a day, 18 days straight, plus a, the commute. God, that's hard. I yeah, think that's hard. Yeah. It was nice, though. They paid you in one check at the end. I think it may have worked out to less than minimum wage. I'm not sure how. But it all came together. And when you're 16, your money is more your own to spend. I remember that about my first jobs. The money always felt so much better when I was under 18 than uh, after 18. Money has never been the same getting the paycheck because it all goes straight away. I've been in university for nine years. I think I've never... I don't know if I have a po- ever had a positive net worth since then. Okay, the university is a bit more. It used to be the same cost as the UK. It was about three thousand pounds, but it's sort of gone up. And you don't have a grant or anything. Well, you do. You have government student loans. Okay. Um, but they're loans. But they're loans. Um, and then, especially something like law school, people accumulate much more debt for the living expenses and. It doesn't always cover the entire cost of tuition. Then all the books, you know, 4,000 pages a term or whatever you have to buy. Um, I did enjoy the first paycheck. I remember my second... Yeah, I can't remember. It was my second job. It was also involved heat, but it was only min- it was also only minimum wage. Yeah, I was a costumed historical interpreter. You know, the, you know these sort of fake old-timey towns? Yeah, it was a federal government make-work program. So they paid this non-profit organization a grant to cover two positions or something at minimum wage to employ teenagers, basically. So yeah, I, I worked whatever it was, five days a week or something, sometimes on weekends, dressed up as a 19th century colonial type beside the print shop across the street from the blacksmith. The problem was is because I was not a regular worker, this is summer in Toronto, there's a heat wave, all the grass had died. They could only afford to give us the old winter clothes. So I had like this thick winter wool wheel cap on and in the middle of the summer. My yeah, my partner, this poor girl, had winter dresses on and underskirts and everything. I think she had she fainted a couple times. Got, you know, heat stroke or it's funny. My girlfriend and I we worked at the Glastonbury Festival. Yeah doing cash and traffic management I think it was called so we were basically out standing up like you say all day and not quite 14 hour shifts I think 12 hour shifts or something like that but it was very very sunny but then as as the UK likes to do yeah. it threw everything at us as well so we had the rain but we didn't we, for some reason when we made the decision we were at university and we really need the money and we didn't we worked the whole festival so everybody else worked the first two days got their tickets for the festival and then didn't come back yeah. We worked the whole way through, and you know, I, like Jen was close to fainting, I think, a few times because she was like sunburned, and yeah. they, they were supposed to bring you food. You weren't allowed to leave where you were, and they were supposed to bring you food, but sometimes they forgot to bring you food, so you were 12 hours without any food, and you know, only a bottle of water. And I know this, you know, there's people who have much harder times than this, but that, that was that was grueling. Yeah, and you were doing it 18, 18 it was 14. Days. Yeah. 18 days in a row like that yeah. and then yeah I mean I think people don't really think about how much standing in one place and being hot yeah. can completely mess someone up for a long you know if you do it for a long yeah. time well the second job I did get to sit which is nice ah, right. and there was a tree a tree um, on the other hand there were also stilts and I had to walk. Well, they were they were sort of old timey stilts, right? There was it's basically two two by fours with some cleats on them, so you could sort of stand, right? Uh, and then if I got bored, I was encouraged to wander around the village on these stilts to impress the tourists, who were mainly Japanese and German. Maybe they took away the wrong impression of what colonial life was like. All these. Children charmingly wandering around on stilts yeah. for teenagers. It was a bit nice. I got to move around. The thing I remember about it is the way the funding was set up is that the federal government just had this make-work program, right? And it was to pay for 37 hours a week or something. But the park was only open 34 hours a week. So they had to find something for us to do for the extra three hours a week. So we had to come in early and stack wood 
because this was a colonial village, you know, they they all the the fireplaces and they had a blacksmith that operated on wood. And there's just this huge field in the corner of the park, just full of wood, piles of wood. And our just job was for hours to stack it neatly in long rows, wearing our winter clothing in the summer. But why did they make you wear the clothes? Like they made you dress up just to do the stuff that happened before? Well, I don't. Know. It was just a half hour before yeah, it started, it right? Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know. I can't even remember if they made us do it. But, but were you? What are you going to do? do? Yeah, yeah. I can, I can, I'll tell you, I can see that. Yeah. So I mean, it's ridiculous government, you know, boost spending boost. It was there to paying make kids work. to. Well, yeah. They, Why was it making work for kids? Just to give us a leg up in the world and get us work experience and you know. Okay. Somebody has to walk around on stilts to impress the Germans. I guess so, but I mean, if the government are making work for people, you'd think that they would make it for the adult population rather than the children. It's a welfare state. Yeah, well, yeah. It's a strange decision, but then I'm not saying that this 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 country doesn't make very, very strange decisions all the time. Well, we they, do. they did... They had a, we were in high school, I think. This is the end of my high school. And I think there were a few university students who were employed on a similar scheme. I don't think they did anything different, but they were paid more. Okay. So... So they... <laughs> so for the place, it just... Got I think they used, used the government's money to yeah, basically. pay some people to do the job to, for less money. Yeah. Okay. But there, it was also because it's, it's Canada, so there's a seasonal element to all this, right? In the winter, everything is covered in snow and there's not as many tourists wandering around. In the summer, you have more outdoor activities. I would, would set up croquet. I would set, bring badminton nets between trees, generally run children's type of activities. So they needed more staff in the summer. And maybe it's hard in the big five million person city in Toronto to find somebody to dress up in winter clothing in the summer for two or three months to to do this kind of thing. And so it was a, it was a summer job between school yeah. like and between yeah. when you were, you were still at school at the time. Yeah. Did you need the money again? Well, not really. I mean, I lived at home. But what I did have was parents who were insistent that I work and do something. So they nagged me into to getting a job, which in retrospect was good. I certainly had the opportunity to work during school. The Carnies, for instance, tried to hire me at the end of the 18-day carnival. I think their next stop was London, Ontario, which is a city of a two or three hundred thousand people. Again, they would just sort of tour around for the season. Yeah, I could have run away with this very odd family of carnival workers and made less than minimum wage and yeah. abandoned my high school studies. It doesn't sound like a romantic uh, no. dream. You did that for a summer job and then you went to university. Yeah. You did philosophy. Why did you do philosophy? Well, in high school I did only science and math. I mean, I say only. I was in French immersion for a long time. So I did math in French. But I, I did mainly math and science. Um, my dad's family are pretty much all doctors. Um, and for whatever reason, I just fell into that. And I was admitted to the University of Toronto as a science student. I think I was admitted to McGill as a computer science student. I applied to Waterloo, which is a sort of big engineering center. Uh, in Canada as a math student, although I was too lazy to fill out the supplemental form. So they said, sorry, you, you can't be a math student, but you can be a kinesiology student if you want to. Kinesiology? Yeah, it was like bodily motion. And like, I, I, I only have the vaguest sense of it. And, but it was a very odd thing. You applied to be a math student, but you didn't fill out the form, so kinesiology. Anyway, so I, I, I got in as a science student, but... I think by the time I'd finished high school, my last year, I I'd lost a bit of interest in math and science. And I remember having one friend who was nerdy like me. We sort of did the same things. We had websites in the 90s. Wow. He, he uh, I had a blog in the late 90s. 
and he had copies of like Adobe development tools and things, so he had like Flash intro. He was one of those annoying people that had a Flash intro to his personal weblog in like 1997. We had Palm Pilots and things, but he was always a bit more business-oriented than me. And he wanted to, for instance, turn his web programming skills, as everybody did in the late 90s, into a business. And to some extent, he's succeeded. He's now working for a big multinational doing sort of digital advertising kind of things, digital marketing. So whatever he was interested in, and he's even ended up in, in London recently, so I sort of reconnected with him. But at the time, you know, he was really interested in more political science stuff, business, economics. And for some reason, he latched onto the Oxford PPE. You know, it's sort of this program that, like, the Tory grandees do, like philosophy, politics, economics, the sort of generalist statesman type stuff. He was really big into it. For some, it's very odd living in, in Toronto to have somebody just sort of latch on to this, you know, prestigious university program far away when he wasn't going to go there or anything. But he just latched onto that model, and I think maybe that some of that rubbed off onto me. Maybe thinking that, you know, as I lost interest in math, maybe I'd want to do more generalist things. Even though I, I got into U of T as a science student, my course load in my first year was, you know, economics, philosophy, global politics. <laughs> Rather embarrassingly, um, I did... I did Math and I took a math that was two levels too hard for me, just as a sort of I don't know, see if I really wanted to to do that. I ended up failing it, so obviously it was a a poor choice. But yeah, I somehow just fell into a much more generalist stream, and I I didn't end up pursuing politics, although political literature I started to read more once I got into law school and doing that sort of political science thing. Although after first year I somehow ended up as an intern for a political science professor, curiously. Which was interesting though because it involved international travel. Which is nice when you're just done first year university. Well, it was international travel. It was also a TV show. This professor had done previous year where he, you know, it was a big class, it was eight, eight, nine hundred people, a huge class held at the biggest room at Canada's biggest university. And so the previous year he'd rounded up a bunch of interns and they'd, they'd filmed a documentary four-part about a group of students, these students, who were going to start an NGO. And this was shown on public television in Ontario. I think it was very much an attempt to have a sort of educational reality TV. You know, Survivor had only come out two years previously. I remember because when I was working as a carny, there's a, Survivor is a big thing. The local radio station had set up a Survivor tent. And they'd had, yeah... Oh, that been about Yeah, and I went to university in about 2001. Right, year after I So the previous year, they they started this NGO, and some people had gone to the LSE for conferences on neglected diseases, which was their cause. You know, African sleeping sickness, things that are really profitable for for drug companies to develop, as opposed to one more cholesterol drug. Yeah. So my year, I think they intended to do it again, except I was in a course on global politics and 9-11 was, I think, maybe the second day of class. So that changed the direction of the year. And at the end of the year, they recruited, again, a number of students, not necessarily the best, I can attest, to again be interns and again do a show, except this time they would take them and tour around the United States to, I don't know, take the pulse of the nation. Okay, so were you actually on, on, on camera? Yeah, so I figured that they would do the sort of Gilligan's Island casting kind of, you know. So I, I remember I'd gone to the most Oxbridge-y college at, at U of T, which is, it's, it's a far distance away from Oxbridge, but there's still enormously pretentious Canadian kids singing God Save the Queen, and you still had to wear gowns for dinner and wear a jacket, the whole, the whole thing. 
So I showed up in a suit to the interview, made a point, oh, I'm heading to the opera after this, and blah, 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 which was true, to be fair. But I ended up getting hired, and, you know, there's me, there was a, a girl who was born in Oman, and her passport, I think, was rather awkwardly issued in Yemen, which is a little a little tricky because we were going to go to the States. Ball town girl who is much more interested in women's studies, and there was a campus political activist. Right. Yeah, so we all crammed onto an RV. We had a camera guy, we had the political science professor, and we had a professional safari driver. It's a South African, I think. And we spent a few weeks touring around. Did the TV crew manipulate you to make drama? Or was that a little bit early for that kind of thinking, really? Well, it was only the one guy, right? Again, this is sort of a public television. And it's, and it's early in the days of... A road rules had existed for a while. Right. Right, so this is obviously inspired. But it's about political science students, right? It's not... It wasn't like Jersey Shore or anything. I think the difference was that you internalized the need for drama. It wasn't nobody told you that you needed to be dramatic. But you did act a bit differently, right? You're having an argument about something. And I would often argue with the, the campus radical type. That's how they must have cast this company. Well, exactly. And I was, oh, I was the conservative economic student, uh, and this, she was the campus radical. And so we argued. And you, you argue at a certain level. And then suddenly the camera guy hears what's going on, runs over, and then... And you know there's other people listening. Yeah, and you kick it up a notch. Yeah. You don't, you don't really try to, but it just... You're certainly aware that the camera's there. And I guess if you, you know, if you were to back down on something that you didn't, wouldn't personally want to be seen backing down on again, like you, you're aware that you're being seen. Yeah. So you have to kind of fight it through to the end. Yeah. But when you, I mean, like I've recorded myself a lot, and I can edit out when I'm stupid. I don't. Yeah. But I can. But you wouldn't have been able to edit that out. So were you not afraid that you were going to say something and it was going to go on TV and it was going to? Yeah, there might have been one or two times, but like, I don't think anything really serious. It's more just you don't want to see, be seen to be a total idiot, right? Yeah. You're not, it's not that anybody is really that offensive. I mean, all, we're all ultimately Canadians and <laughs> somewhat reserved. You didn't have anything to win. No, it was just, it was just a sort of, yeah. I mean, that said, I don't know if it was a particularly good show. Maybe because we were too polite, or at least I was too polite. I remember I had a particularly unfavorable three-line review in Canada's national newspaper. I do remember there were long arguments where you didn't want to back down. There was about a 45-minute argument about the future of rail travel. <laughs> and not even, no, not even rail, rail freight. I said, well, how are you going to transport all this coal? You can't put it in pickup trucks. And then the, uh, the, the other person said, no, no, trades are the way out. Oh, 45 minutes of that. I, I remember going to the launch party, and the editor came up to me and just said, oh, I feel like I know you. I've just been sitting with all this rail footage, oh my God. sifting through it all. I mean, they would feel like they Yeah. Well, they, they had to shoot so much. It was four episodes, commercial-free, because yeah. it's public television, so you know they're quite long. But all that said, I'm not sure I was the greatest on camera, because I wasn't... Even if you do feel the need to step things up a bit and not back down, I'm not sure I was passionate and argumentative enough. And if my personality when I was cast was to be the sort of aloof, supposedly conservative, although that's kind of a, a lie, economic student, then, you know, my job was to quip, I guess, and I didn't really make much of an impression. I remember one of the episodes, the the person introducing it, this sort of, you know, academic type, who, he's one of these media-friendly academic types introducing it, said, oh, so-and-so, the small-town kid, so-and-so, the, you know, uh, Muslim girl, so-and-so, the sensitive, uh, really questioning American power girl, and then the campus radical. <laughs> I was like, where's me? What? They didn't even mention you. Wow. Yeah, I was just there. Again, so maybe 
maybe I didn't embarrass myself, but I don't think I made much of an impression as a media personality. Why did you do it? It sounded interesting. Yeah. You know, you go spend three weeks in the U.S. I think I've been to about 28 of the 50 states now, and 26 of those were on the trip. Um, so, it, you know, it was an experience. You met lots of interesting people. Um, you got paid. Not very much. Yeah. But, yeah, why not? Well, no, I mean, I so do it. I, I do it, yeah. but, I mean, certainly in, in those days as well. Like, yeah. I think that now when they make reality TV, they hyper, hyper load it. Yeah. You know, they really can't resist tinkering. But again, this is sort of meta-reality TV. Yeah. This is sort of like a BBC4 thing. Yeah. That has been set up. Oh, that's set, right. Set they up. do still make those... They've been sort of set up to maybe catch unwary viewers and forcibly educate them. That's right. They do still know. make those kind of reality. And in fact, those are generally the ones that I enjoy. But even then, they yeah. they do still front load them a little bit. So they'll, yeah. they'll put a kind of a great teacher in a, a terrible school. Oh, yeah, the That's school the, is Starkey. And, and, oh, oh, God. Oh, yeah. I don't know if he's That's, a great teacher. No, no, no. I wasn't thinking of him, just yeah. to make it very clear. I yeah. was not thinking of Jamie's um, Academy or whatever that was yeah. called. I was thinking of before that, they did... Um, there was a kind of there was a music teacher guy that went into schools and taught kids how to sing and there was a, another guy I think he went in and taught yeah. boys and stuff I was thinking of that I can't remember the guy's name but yeah, I, I mean some that. of these kind of highbrow reality TV concept yeah. but still with a, a big element of drama well you always try and add drama I remember yeah, I, wa- I, I, I think I was one of the four people who watched uh, the BBC4 History of Ceramics miniseries <laughs> it was the most dramatic music is this orchestral swells and everything. <laughs> it was just pots spinning around on screen. You know, they just had a, a pot spinning and then the camera would sp- pan slowly past and say, you know, pot Wedgwood 1799 v- at the V&A. got a full orchestra for this. It was, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you should, you probably should make your programs as entertaining as possible as yeah. if, you, if you want to, if you want to educate people. Did you become known at all? Like, no, it, you it, no. No. No, I think, maybe, no, that's not, I think one person, I think one person recognized me. More, outside more, more my college, so they might. Yeah. yeah, it was outside my college, so I think maybe one person who had some association with the college who had seen me before, uh, and then saw me TV. So everyone would have watched it. Is this the guy from the college? I, I can't that even remember. It. it made so little impression. Remember when I was at school, people in the, in my year went went on like a kids program quiz show yeah. thing, and yeah, everybody everybody cared about that for a bit and then forgot about it. Yeah. yeah, I guess it probably was a little bit like that in the college. That's very interesting. I didn't I didn't know I was going to stumble across the uh, the internship on on telly. It's a strange thing to have a a kind of an internship. But it's also I mean was it was it it wasn't was it internships are generally not paid are they? Yeah. Well, it was the thing is it was a TV show, but then at the end. The way it was set up is you also had to take this professor's half-term or term-long course afterward. Okay. And then you had to work at his his center. Right, so So, the professor was the main main anchor. Yeah, he's the anchor. So afterward, we came back we did our you know wrap up interviews and they filmed that we did a little press even I think I was on a morning radio show <laughs> I wasn't good at press either I don't think but I, show, I showed up that's half, half of life I showed yeah. up so yeah then we took this half term course in in activism actually now that I recall I forgot about it now that I'm reading all about activism and we did the same thing as the students previously had we started up our own NGO but it was a little anticlimactic after we'd already been on the TV show. I think we picked um, water security as our NGO. It's a big issue in Canada because we have a free trade agreement with the United States. We also have the most fresh water in the world. There's a concerns about commodification and exporting it to the U.S., and they're just going to drink it all. But also more broadly issues about people in the world who don't have all this water and well, maybe we should you know, give some to them or yeah, yeah. figure out how they can get water so it can be a little parochial but it was also yeah, but it was a little anticlimactic after being on TV and I'm not sure we really made much of an impact we marched in a protest once 
Rachel. Was it the same people who were on TV together? Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. the NGO together? Yeah, after we'd already lived with each other for three weeks, and then we suddenly had to start an activist group on an arbitrary topic, which we sort of... Did, did any of you become friends? <sighs> I think we were friendly, but not really. I mean, we were chosen because we were different, right? Um, I think some of them became friends with each other, but they continued more in a political science vein, whereas I moved more to philosophy and economics, though we drifted apart. I mean, I, I was upset. One of them died recently, actually. Yeah, these student activists. You know, we really didn't get along on the trip. We argued all the time. I don't think she took me seriously. You know, I was committed. I was too dispassionate about everything. Where she really engaged with issues and, and really empathetic. She once got in trouble. She's always on the cover of the student newspaper. She once got in trouble. She broke into the student council offices after hours because the council supposedly, you know, the council had supposedly not issued a check for a student group to travel to a conference on Israel or Israel-Palestinian. Yeah, yeah. So she broke in after hours to write the check. Or at least that's how it's reported. Like, she was really committed. But we, uh, we just didn't get along. But it turns out that, you know, I thought she dropped out to pursue activism full-time. That's what everybody had said. She was really energetic. She'd been a full-time student counselor in, in, in the UK. You get a year off, right? Uh, she was taking more than a full course load while doing this, while being on council. And, but we'd all thought she dropped out. Apparently, she ended up going to law school. She ended up doing human rights. I think she may have done some stuff at the International Court of Justice, maybe an internship or a sort of mock trial or something. I saw some photos. I uh, worked in Paris a little as a summer job. And she'd actually just started her internship at Amnesty International in Ottawa when she was hit by a drunk driver going the wrong way down the road at 2 in the morning as she went home. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it was upsetting. I mean, you know, not only the, the tragedy that she died, but also that we just not gotten along and then suddenly we both ended up in similar places, you know, me with a master's in London and human rights focus and her in Ottawa and, you know, I probably would have ended up running into her on a regular basis. And I'd actually been thinking of her because she'd, you know, for all my aloofness from activist causes, you know, I mean, I, I still subscribe to all the email lists and I'd only found out that she was doing this because she had popped up on this email list that I subscribed to about, you know, social justice activism and the law quite recently. Yeah. It's interesting and sad and I don't know, it's, it's interesting that two people were chosen with essentially supposed to be very different and then it kind of evens out I think as a girl yeah. people kind of can, can come to cl- closer to understanding where each other are coming from. The last question that I ask people is do they have anything to plug which is a very strange question and it's been interpreted in many ways by people some people just promote things of their own but other people have promoted points of view or somebody else's thing or charities or all sorts of things or you know life statements or whatever you know big things small things do you have anything to plug I told my flatmate that I was coming to this Chatham House thing and then that I was going to be interviewed for a podcast. She said, oh, maybe I'll get a job out of this. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, no, it's not It's not that kind of podcast. And in fact, maybe he's more interested in me because I don't have a job. But no, I don't really have a plug. That's the problem with me. I don't really have strong enough causes that I... Uh, do you wish that you did? Or are you happy the way you are? I think given who I am, I'm happy where I am. Yeah. I've always been someone who is considered, maybe a bit too considered, going back to undergrad. You never end up taking a position. I like to think that with legal training, now it's okay that I can take somebody else's position. I find it so hard not to take positions and then 
you know, a, a year later, I wish I'd taken a different one because I didn't, you know, make, I made, I jumped too soon. I, mean, I, jumped, I grabbed on something too quickly. So I think there's something to be said for, for both points. I mean, I realize it's the luxury of not having to take positions comes out of a certain privilege, but because you don't, if you don't face, you know, great adversity, you can't maintain a certain aloofness. Yeah. But the last thing I ask people to do... The last, last thing. Yeah, the last thing is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye, audience. Goodbye. So, I just thought I would remind people who are listening to this, who are in America, to go to www.eff.org and look into the threat that this patent troll is holding towards the independent podcasting community, which you're enjoying now you're listening to that now now i'm in the uk so this may not affect me too much really but it might affect me i'm not sure how far it's going to go what it's going to do it needs to be nipped in the bud as soon as possible certainly it affects podcasters that i love podcasters who have been on this show so if you like the idea of people just making stuff because they love it and sharing it with people who are interested in listening to it and that being allowed to happen without somebody that has nothing to do with making that content and has nothing to do with making the equipment used to record it or the existing distribution services that we all use they didn't start those this company has nothing to do with any of that stuff and yet it thinks it can say you have to pay us money for that that law needs to be changed so please if you're in america support that and if you're not in america just be aware of this kind of thing because it's happening in your countries and if it happens in america it could affect the world anyway because we have a global culture really so thanks for listening www.eff.org Their next stop was London, Ontario. I think 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 their next stop was London, Ontario.